This is the Society for Healthcare Innovations interview series. With us today, we have Dr. Mina Seishamani, the Vice President of Clinical Transformation at MedStar Health, where she leads value-based care initiatives across the 10 hospital, 300 outpatient clinic health system. Before coming to MedStar, Dr. Seishamani was the Director of Health Reform at the Department for Health and Human Services. In that capacity, she drove strategy and managed the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. Dr. Seishamani got her undergraduate at Brown University, did med school at Penn, and attended the University of Oxford, where she received her PhD in health economics and was a Marshall Scholar. Dr. Seishamani did a residency at Johns Hopkins University, and we are very excited to have her with us this evening. Dr. Seishamani, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Of course. And I think the first thing we'd be curious to hear about is how your organization has transformed uh, and innovated to meet the challenges, the unique challenges that it's posed. Yeah, so there are many ways that um, we have innovated. I think um, some of the ones that probably come more to mind um, for people are around, you know, turning ORs into ICUs and establishing separate ERs for COVID patients, establishing tents for COVID triage and COVID testing. So we have done all of those to meet the surge in the need. Um, but beyond what I think are forefront in people's minds, we've been doing a lot of innovation about how a hospital and health system can best meet what ultimately is a public health crisis and a crisis of communities and of populations. So some examples of that include work that we're doing with our skilled nursing facilities. So I think, as a lot of you know, our nursing homes really are serving as an epicenter for this pandemic. They are frail populations at increased risk for COVID complications living in a congregate living environment where it is more difficult to isolate. And even before the coronavirus crisis, we were partnering with many um, skilled nursing facilities with our geriatricians to be able to better serve those populations because at the end of the day, that's how you keep people healthy if we are a healthcare system as opposed to a sick care system. So we were able to leverage those relationships to reach out to these facilities and say, hey, you know, we now are dealing with coronavirus, let's partner with you so that we can help you with infection control, with how you can cohort and better isolate um, when you do get a COVID outbreak so that you can feel supported using our telehealth platform, knowing that there is a geriatrician who you can call if a patient is not looking right. You can call us and we will be able to work with you and figure out is that patient going to be okay? Here are things that you can try. Here's what you can do. Or we need to escalate this to our ED bunker, where now an ER doc can also be present in this telehealth conversation to help facilitate a transfer to the ED. So that's just one example where we have been able to really service across the, um, the care continuum. And in fact, we've been working with the National Guard in Maryland to also go in in times of crisis as a strike team to um, help with stabilizing in the nursing homes. So like another example is all of our work for care transitions. So you have a COVID patient coming into the hospital, right? They've been in the ICU. As I think you know, coronavirus patients tend to be sicker, right? 
length of stay tends to be longer. They're more likely to need to be on events. You know, and with all of that, you get decompensation. And again, these are also patients who tend to be from lower income environments, right? I think also the coronavirus crisis has shown us where there are inequities in terms of who is being impacted. So you do everything that you can. You take care of the patients. You discharge them from the hospital. Absolutely something to celebrate that you have saved this person's life. But then the question is, what are they going out back to? And especially when people need to be on isolation for up to two weeks after they've been in the hospital, if they didn't, if they tended to be low income, didn't necessarily have family supports, or do they have food at home? Do they have the medications they need? Because people who get hospitalized for coronavirus also tend to have chronic conditions. So they've got a bunch of medication needs. If you just discharge the patient, without thinking about all the things they need afterwards, and they have to be on isolation, how are they going to survive? And how are they gonna isolate effectively so they don't continue to spread the virus? If they don't have food at home, they need to go to the grocery store, then it's also creating that public health hazard that will continue viral spread. So we set up a care transitions program where a care transitions nurse partnered with a community health worker is addressing both the clinical and social needs of all of our COVID patients being discharged. So that way we make sure that they um, know how to self-isolate their food, medication, transportation. We're able to help link them with community resources and support them through that. And because coronavirus can get worse, you know, it, it enables us to make sure that people continue on the road to recovery and don't end up bouncing back to the hospitals. So we have reached, you know, upwards of 700 patients and we reached in maybe like a three week time period, two week time period, a really substantial reach for these patients and really some very grateful patients who literally had no food in their house and didn't know what they were going to do. And the community health worker is able to, to help them. And then I think the third example that I would give is our palliative care work. Uh, because again, you know, you really wanna be able to meet people where they are and care for them in a way that they want to be cared for. And I think it's very scary when you're going into the hospital where your family member can't be there with you, right? Because of the infectious nature of coronavirus, you know, a lot of hospital policies are limiting visitors and you're not able to have family members with you. And to be able to engage where patients are at and support them in what they need and utilize telehealth, for example, so that family members can see their loved ones. And so that we can make sure that everybody is involved as they want to be in managing the symptoms of patients and helping people decide what it is um, that they want and that they need. Our palliative care program in particular has really leveraged um, telehealth to enable us to meet the needs um, of this time and to be able to follow patients outside of the hospital because some of our cancer patients or some of our sickest patients, you, you don't want them to, to have to come into the hospital and you want to be able to support them in what they need during this time and being able to leverage telehealth, even in that community setting has been incredibly important. Yeah, I mean, all three of those are amazing initiatives. It was interesting. I was reading, I think today in the Times, that 88% of hospitalized patients have two or more chronic conditions. So uh, certainly these are folks who are already uh, at risk of adverse outcomes, uh, only added to by uh, 
contracting coronavirus. And so what, what you mentioned reminds me a little bit of uh, Geisinger uh, Fresh Food Pharmacy, where they will send meals uh, to pre-diabetics in the hopes of preventing them from becoming diabetic, right? And I think, you know, what you guys are doing makes a ton of sense, right? You don't want these people in the community infecting others. The key to uh, curtailing the spread of this virus is to isolate folks who have contracted it. So that makes a ton of sense, and I hope other health systems take your lead. That's absolutely right. You mentioned several interesting initiatives uh, and and a, really a transformation in the way you guys are beginning to think about care, uh, bringing telehealth into the picture. Um, which of these initiatives, or maybe some that you haven't mentioned, do you feel will endure beyond this pandemic and, and be something that um, that we see going forward? D, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what I will say is, None of these initiatives were necessarily new. These were all things that we had been working on prior to the pandemic that just that got accelerated through the pandemic. And I think the ability to think across the system for how we can manage patients, both across our hospitals and extending to our community settings, our ambulatory settings, and even out into the community, that is something that we absolutely want to continue. So I think our care transitions program, our work in partnering with our um, facilities and the other avenues in which patients come in for care, our care management programs with primary care um, is extraordinarily important because there too, I didn't mention this, but we have care managers in our primary care offices who are proactively contacting patients who are at higher risk for COVID complications to check in on them. How are they doing? What do they need? If they're having any symptoms? And I can tell you that our nurse care managers are picking up patients. They're calling them, oh yeah, I'm feeling really short of breath. And they're actually sending people to get tested. So being able to be you know, more proactive, particularly with our vulnerable populations has been key. And I think also for palliative care, I think that work will continue. You know, I think that traditionally people have equated palliative care with hospice. Like palliative care steps in when like, you know, you're at the very end. When in fact, palliative care is really about working with a patient and their family members to figure out what they want from their care to help with symptom management, to provide that emotional support. And it's not just for the end of life, it's for when you have kind of more serious diagnoses. And, you know, being able to be there, particularly in this very stressful and anxious time for patients and their family members has been critical. And um, again, the telehealth aspect that underlies all of those programs. It has enabled us to address access issues. It's enabled us to be more effective as healthcare providers, where a healthcare provider can actually see more patients and do more good in the same amount of time. I think that telehealth aspect is also going to be key to continue. Makes a lot of sense. So one of the things that folks are rightfully speaking about is this concept of a second wave. So especially here in the Northeast, as we begin to see the peak subside a little bit, there's talk about the implications for those suffering from behavioral health issues um, and obviously chronic, uh, chronic disease, which we've already spoken about. Um, how are you guys thinking about these challenges? 
Yeah, I mean, I think so on several folds. I think first, coming back to what you were asking me before, the things that we are putting in place, we are putting in place. These are things that we need to support our communities, regardless of whether we are in a wave or in a trough. And so they will be there to continue to support our communities and our hospitals um, if, you know, cases increase again. Um, I think that's key number one. And I think continuing to work with um, the District of Columbia, with the state of Maryland, you know, we are partnering with them to encourage, you know, continued surveillance and help in that regard as well. I think all of those are important. And I think lastly, one thing that I think the pandemic has shown all of us is the need to be agile and the need to be resilient. And so as an organization, how do we set things up so that we can adjust with what the needs are? Because I think every day we are learning something new about the coronavirus, about the disease, about who it affects, how it affects those people. And I think it's important that in our organization, we continue to have that agility where we can continually learn and adjust. And that will enable us to then take, you know, whatever comes our way in future waves or in other future manifestations of the disease. One of the questions I was excited to ask you uh, because of your background, you know, you've, you've worked for the Department of Health and Human Services, so you have some idea of government efficiency and inefficiency, uh, but you also work as a, as a executive at MedStar. So there are a lot of Monday morning quarterbacks, myself included. It's one of my favorite pastimes, right? We all love to sit here and say how things should be done and could be done. Um, <laughs> but I'm curious if, you know, if tomorrow you uh, took over as president, you know, how would you manage uh, this pandemic uh, from a national perspective? I think there are... Um there are several areas. So I'll start with public health infrastructure. I think that this pandemic has shown us the need to appropriately plan, resource the public health infrastructure and integrate with the healthcare infrastructure. Because what we've seen is that a lack of capacity around testing, contact tracing, containment, you know, and surveillance ended up blossoming into a lack of capacity around hospital beds, ventilators, hospital staff and personal protective equipment for those hospital staff. So I think certainly there needs to be efforts and particularly as we look to open, uh, open the um, society and economy, you know, really being more robust with our uh, testing and our contact tracing so that we have more data by which we can approach things in a safer manner. I think that's number one. Number two, I think another thing that this pandemic has shown us are where there are future opportunities for improvement in health insurance coverage. So the ACA did lead to um, expansion of health insurance, about 20 million fewer Americans um, were uninsured, but we still have millions without insurance and we have millions who do not have enough insurance. And I think now in the economic crisis with people losing their employment, we're having increased numbers of people also losing their health insurance where now they have this double whammy that they're losing their health insurance at the same time that they're losing their economic security. And there definitely have been policies around, uh, you know, the current administration saying they're gonna pay hospitals for the cost of COVID care um, for the uninsured with commercial payers saying they will waive co-payments and out-of-pocket costs for COVID treatments. 
But at the end of the day, those are band-aids. They're not ultimate solutions to the issues at hand. And so really looking at policies around how we improve health insurance coverage will be important. Um, and then I think coming back to what we talked about before, I think that there are ways that um, policymakers can strengthen our healthcare delivery system. So coronavirus has demonstrated stark inequalities um, related oftentimes to social determinants of health where we can invest to improve the um, healthcare access and coverage for um, our low-income populations, our minority populations, and also, how do we improve in care delivery across the care continuum? Hospitals are now in dire straits financially because what keeps the healthcare system going are fee-for-service elective procedures. And fee-for-service elective procedures are not what is needed in a time of a public health crisis. And so people are, healthcare workers are losing their jobs at precisely the time where healthcare workers are needed. And so how do we encourage through these value-based care payment models, how do we encourage better care coordination, prevention, you know, um, care management, because that's ultimately what is gonna keep communities healthier. And this is how you can incorporate the innovations that we've been talking about around telehealth, around you know, how we focus on chronic disease management, around how we um, address access issues. That's where these things can come into play in these kind of alternative payment models. Yeah, and you know, everything that you've said kind of ties into this concept of value-based care, where it's really about keeping the person safe and healthy rather than uh, paying to treat them once they're in an acute situation. And so you move care away from the inpatient setting. And to me, one of the ironies of, of repealing the ACA without a um, suitable replacement is that you now place those 20 million people back in a situation where they, they can't go to a primary care doctor because they're not covered, and the only place for them to go is to an emergency room in the midst of an uncontrolled pandemic, which is obviously the best place to contract COVID. So I think uh, everything that you're doing and saying makes a lot of sense, and I hope more people will listen to you. So, you know, one of the goals in uh, this interview series that we've started is to allow folks in places that have not yet been hit as hard as the Northeast to learn from some of the innovations that have already occurred. Obviously, you've done a fantastic job at MedStar, and you know we would love to get your take. You know, if you could roll back the clock to that point where you first realized how serious this was going to be, and mm -hmm. uh, you today could give advice to that former version of yourself, uh, wh what advice would you give? I think um, the imp what we have seen, I think, is the importance of transparency, data, communication, agility, and resilience. Those are things that have been so key for us in being able to manage this. And I think also making sure that you are thinking about all of the myriad of ways that the different pieces of the puzzle come together. I think it's very easy, especially in the early stages, to be focused on the patients that are coming into your hospital and how you're going to address that. However, at the same time, you need to be thinking about where those patients are coming from and where they will be, where they will be going back to, because that's the only way that you are gonna fully address the situation and the issues. And so really thinking about that whole pandemic 
and thinking about all of the pieces from the skilled nursing facilities to, you know, the convention centers that you're thinking about for, you know, the surges, right? These, these pieces are all related. And I think that in going through this, I think we have gotten a better sense of that. You know, another example is in New York, the Javits Center was started to be a decompression for hospitals because the hospitals were overrun with COVID patients. So here's a place where, a, you know, hospital patients can go. They're just that they're having staffing shortages in their nursing homes because their staff are getting COVID. And so they're actually thinking about potentially using the Javits Center to send skilled nursing facility patients to when there's a staffing shortage. So it shows how you have to stay agile and you have to adjust things as the situations present. And I think that's probably the biggest learning in this, that across the healthcare continuum, there are many different pieces of the puzzle. And so you have to be able to bring these pieces together in a dynamic fashion. I joke with you know, members of the leadership at MedStar that um, it's like a jigsaw puzzle where the pieces are constantly changing in shape and size just as you're trying to bring them together. But it's this system thinking that is going to enable us to effectively respond to the pandemic. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, Dr. Seishamani, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and thank you for all the amazing work that you are doing uh, to keep us safe uh, and to keep folks out of the hospital. This is the Society for Healthcare Innovation. Thank you for joining us.